Our reading today is from Daniel chapter 9, and you can find it on page 1278 in the Pew Bibles. Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, 
look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, in the middle of the seven. He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Judith. That was a mammoth uh, effort on that reading. Um, but you did very well. Thank you. Can I encourage you to keep um, that part of the Bible open? Although most of, hopefully, what we'll need to do, you'll see on the screen. In the 1930s, there was a man called Dr. Martin Niemoller. And he was, there he is, he was a prominent Protestant pastor in Germany. 
who emerged as an outspoken public foe of Adolf Hitler. He was one of the founders of what was called the Confessing Church in Germany in the 1930s, and it was a church that was formed in part to oppose the Nazification of Protestant churches in that country. And, uh, and as such, he, of course, resisted Hitler in some very clear and obvious ways, uh, and in fact, uh, so much so that it got him into trouble with Hitler himself. And Niemöller would actually ended up being sent to Dachau, the concentration camp in 1937. Uh, while he was there, he narrowly escaped execution on several occasions. And he describes those first days of imprisonment as follows. And remember, the war hadn't broken out yet. So while we call it a concentration camp, it wasn't known as that at that particular time that he was there. But this is what he writes. He said, let me tell you how I know that this book, the Bible, uh, is worth, or what this book is worth. It was March 2nd, 1938. I'd been in prison for eight months and had been tried. After the trial, I'd been taken by secret police to the concentration camp north of Berlin. They took my wallet, my wristwatch, my wedding ring, and they took my pocket Bible, which I had been allowed to have with me during the months of imprisonment in Berlin. The next morning when the commandant came, I asked him to let me have my Bible back. The man wavered. I was the personal prison, prisoner of the Fuhrer. But in the end, he sent an orderly to get the Bible from his office. I had not been in the camp for 24 hours when the Bible, the Word of God, entered that camp. The book that bears witness and testifies to the one to whom all power belongs in heaven and on earth even in concentration camps. There was the book. There was God with all the strength and comfort that I needed. So I wonder how you and I would cope if we were the personal private prisoner of Adolf Hitler. Well, Niemöller's answer to that, of course, was that you get your Bible out and the book that bears witness to the one whom uh, all power belongs in heaven and on earth, you immerse yourself in that, even in a concentration camp. And so consider this. As we think of Martin Niemöller in the concentration camp, and as indeed we face our own times of turmoil in our own lives, perhaps not as dramatic as being incarcerated in a concentration camp, but nevertheless, all of us go through periods of turmoil, who is keeping the roof on your life when the storms hit? What do you think of God at such times? Do you really think of God as being sovereign? And I ask myself this question as we read the book of Daniel. Am I like Martin Niemöller? Would I have responded to Hitler in the concentration camp like that? Would I respond as Daniel does in this chapter of the Old Testament today? Because both Daniel and Niemöller stood before tyrants, but they allowed themselves to be led by the word of God, the book that bears witness and testifies to the one to whom all power belongs in heaven and earth. 
and in the most demanding of circumstances, they look to the Bible for guidance and direction. Now, apart from anything else, I think that determines what we do about things. What I think about God will determine how I act and will determine how I pray. That's why Nimola stood as he did against Hitler and that's why Daniel prays in such a way that we have here today. Well, the year is around 538 BC. It's the year of Belshazzar's death, isn't it? Um, if you've been uh, part of this series, you'll be aware of that, I'm sure. Uh, and the, when Belshazzar died, then the Babylonian Empire died with him. Belshazzar had, of course, mocked God by toasting other gods with cups and goblets stolen from the Jerusalem temple. And he did that even though he had seen his father humbled by the one true God. And how on that one night in particular, God's hand wrote on the wall how Belshazzar had been weighed and found wanting and his life would be wanted that night. And in that night, his kingdom was indeed handed over to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar ignored all the signs and the warnings when he was slain that night, and the change was, was dis and disruption was absolutely massive. What happened in Babylon that night was as if our Governor General, our Prime Minister, our Cabinet, and our Parliament were all rounded up and all killed in the one night. Can you imagine the impact on this country? I suspect we can imagine it because look what's happening in Russia right now. And so it was for Babylon the night that Belshazzar died. Now, of course, by this time, Daniel is an old man. He was probably in his 80s or thereabouts. Not a great time of life to cope with massive change, is it? He's been in Babylon since he was an adolescent, all the time testifying to the lordship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he sees this great seismic shift of power happening all around him with an empire ending in a single night. What does he do? How does he respond? Just like Martin Niemöller in 1938, he reaches for his Bible. He reaches for his Bible, as we see in verse 2 of our chapter, and he opens up to the prophet Jeremiah, where he reads that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, this, of course, is the exact same book that you and I can read today. And in fact, he's reading what we call Jeremiah 25, verses 10 and 11. This whole country, Jeremiah writes, will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And Daniel realizes, well, hang on, Babylon's gone. There's just been a change of government. The 70 years is just about up. And so he reads on in Jeremiah 29 verse 10, this is what the Lord says. 
When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Now Daniel's reading this while the coup is taking place all around him. And it's like these words are coming true in front of his eyes and he sees the script in the scriptures that something really significant is about to happen. And so his response is he wants to pray about it. Could we be going home to Jerusalem? Can you, can you see where, you can see where Daniel's head actually is in verse 20 when he sets his watch by Jerusalem temple time. So he's reading the scriptures and he's waiting and he's looking at the, for the fulfillment of the promise of restoration for himself and his people. And he reads Jeremiah 29 verses 11 to 14. Because the condition of this fulfillment, he reads, is a renewed seeking of the Lord. And so Daniel's response is to want to knuckle down and to pray for that to happen, to seek the Lord again. So this is what Jeremiah says in 29 verses 11 to 14. He says, For I, <coughs> for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come to pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now, you know, Daniel could have done what a lot of us would probably be tempted to do in a similar situation and kind of go, well, God's promised this. He's promised restoration for his, for, for his people. Uh, I'll just, I'm just going to sit back because I believe this will all just happen in God's good time. This is great. I believe the promise but it's over to God to make it happen. But he doesn't think like that, does he? Rather, he takes his cue from the word of God and he sees prayer as an extraordinary opportunity to collaborate with God's purposes. And this is a powerful lesson for us. Because the cause of God acting in history isn't just simply his promises to do so, but it's also the praying of his people. And I think that is what praying according to God's will means. So you come to the Bible to find out what the sovereign Lord has promised, which is what Daniel did. And then that, let that guide you to pray for those promises to happen, to be fulfilled. Now, we'll get to Daniel's actual prayer in a moment, but let's just tease out this idea a little bit more. I mean, for example, has God promised that his gospel would spread to the ends of the earth? Yes, he has. We're going to see that when we go from Daniel into the book of Acts in a couple of weeks' time. 
So we should be praying for that promise to be fulfilled. Has God promised that when his word goes out, it will not return empty? Yes, he has. So we should pray for our evangelistic enterprises and activities and opportunities that as the cross is spoken about or preached or discussed, that it won't return empty. God has promised something that moves Daniel to pray. And scripture is sort of grabbing Daniel's mind and out of that the urge to pray is born. It's the Bible that informs and orients Daniel's whole mode of thinking and praying. So how is your prayer life going? Let me ask you, if your prayer life has become dull and flat and languid, as mine seems to with monotonous regularity, then how is your Bible reading going? Because the two, I think, are inseparably linked. And when we realise that and combine the two, it lifts our praying out of our egocentric focus about me and my life and my comfort And it plants the focus firmly on the much bigger things of God, a world consciousness, a church consciousness, a community consciousness. And then a further question for us to consider. What do you need to do to make that happen in your life? In other words, how do you plan for this? See, for me, it it all needs to happen in the first hour or so of my day. Uh, and that needs to be early, before other activities and distractions gain a hold, before the inbox starts filling up, before the phone starts ringing, before, and in, you get the idea. So that means that for me, if I've got a chance of, of, of making my prayer life really work and my time in the Bible really count, then I need to plan for that for me, early in the day, which means I need to plan to get to bed at a decent hour because otherwise the next day is not going to start well. So the question I want to challenge you to think about at the moment is what do you need to do to anchor your mind in God's word so that your prayer life will be so focused and directed as well? And that's only a question that you can answer. But that's exactly what Daniel does. So, how does Daniel pray? We are getting to the prayer. (laughs) And we're not going to be here all morning. It's okay. How does Daniel pray? Well, verse 3, we read, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition in fasting and sackcloth and ashes. This is serious business, isn't it, for Daniel? Fasting, sackcloth, ashes. He's really pulling out all the stops in terms of focus and concentration and commitment. And that should prompt us to ask, how many of our problems in our prayer life are due to the fact that we fail to plan to pray? Because praying is always a serious business. It's a significant business. It's a serious business. 
And while it's true that uh, these days our preparation may not involve a lot of sackcloth and rashes, maybe the occasional bit of fasting, but the point is the planning and preparation and concentration are really essential if we realise that we're in a spiritual battle, a battle against sin, against the world and its pressures and distractions, against Satan himself. And so like any spiritual discipline, prayer requires energy and thoughtful preparation and effort, which is what Daniel does. So do we plan like Daniel has done to spend deliberate, arranged, prepared time in prayer? Wow, it's so often easy to let that slip, isn't it? And prayer just becomes something you squeeze in between other bits and pieces or when things get desperate for you in your life. Well, this is his prayer. And I think there are two foundations from Daniel's prayer that we can learn from. And the first is the character of God. This just tumbles out of Daniel's mouth and his heart, doesn't it? Verse 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. Then down in verse 7. Lord, you are righteous. Verse 9. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. And it goes on in verse 14 and 18 and so on. So for me, that screams out that the starting point of biblical prayer is not asking for anything. It's not laying out needs or telling God what is needed because biblical prayer so often begins with worship. And not just in the Old Testament here. If you look at in the New Testament, have a look at Paul's prayers. They virtually always begin with worship. And in doing this, Daniel is allowing God's righteousness, his power, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness to grip his mind as it pours out of the book of Jeremiah that he's reading and overflows out of Daniel's own mind and heart. And so it completely shifts the focus off him and his needs and onto God and his worth and his character. And so centering Daniel's life and thinking onto God and his agenda. You know, as a kid growing up in England, um, uh, TV in those days was pretty limited. I seem to remember we had two channels, the BBC and something else. And the something else channel actually got really bad reception where we were. So the BBC was pretty much it. <coughs> So therefore, books played a big part in my life because there wasn't much on TV. But I remember one period of my life when the two bits merged together, TV and books, because I remember wanting as a young child, and I was probably about seven, maybe eight, I wanted for a long time a big book published by the BBC about Doctor Who. This was when the very first series was showing. Now, that dates me, doesn't it? And it was huge. And I was desperate for this big Doctor Who compendium with its colour images, because remember the TV show was in black and white in those days, uh, and all the background stories and the details of the plot lines and the actors and, and the aliens that the Doctor fought and all of that. And I remember the day still when my dad bought it home, bought the book home 
for me. And the excitement and the thrill of holding it for the first time. I was utterly content and there was nothing that I wanted more out of life in that moment. I had my treasure. I had all I wanted. Now here's the question coming out of Daniel's prayer for us today. What is your treasure? Because we have here Daniel with his heart set on his treasure. That is God's greatness, God's mercy fills Daniel's heart with adoration. And so you can see how his prayer starts and finishes. The, the book ends, if you like, to his prayer. We've seen how it starts, but look how it finishes in verse 18. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, as in him and his people, but because of your great mercy. Now, you know, that Doctor Who book that my dad brought home for me, I guess it was my treasure for all of about three hours. By then, I had memorised all the good bits and drooled over the colour photos uh, numerous times. But God was Daniel's treasure for 70 years when he was in Babylon. He goes into the lion den, lion's den, and God was his treasure. He won't stop praying publicly, and he knows his enemies will entrap him, but God is his treasure. He's thrown into the furnace. But God remained his treasure. And so I think the question at the heart of prayer, prayer like Daniel prays in this chapter, is do you pray as if God is your treasure? Because if he's not, then is it any wonder that your prayer life is flat and lifeless? And again, let me just tease out this thinking a little bit more as we try to locate where our hearts really are, and that requires a bit of pretty honest self-examination. Let me ask you, what is it that you are most afraid of in life? What is it you most fear? Or a slightly more positive or upbeat version of that question is, what do you daydream about? Because the answer to those questions will actually tell you what or where your treasure is. See, Daniel feared the Lord, as verse 8 tells us back in chapter 1. And he wouldn't allow anything else to interfere with that. And his daydreams, well, he dreamed about returning to Jerusalem. He dreamed about seeing his people restored in their relationship with God. But for you and I, it's so easy, isn't it, to have other priorities, very different priorities, very often material priorities. And it can show in the way our prayer lives look and feel. Which leads me to the second foundation for biblical prayer, which we can learn from Daniel today, and that is confession of sin. Because it's vital. And again, you can see it tumbling out of Daniel's heart from verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. 
And then in verse 8, O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. And there's more in verse 10 and 13. So as Daniel seeks God in prayer, there is no evasion. There's no seeking to justify or rationalize. He's totally willing to confess to God what is wrong and to acknowledge the mistakes and the errors and the rebellion that Daniel and his people are guilty of time and time again. For us, the qualification of being a Christian is not, are you good enough, which is what I was thinking before my time at Moore College, thinking I had to act like in such a way that God would be impressed enough with, with that. It's not that. It actually needed to be a realisation that I was bad enough and I knew it. And so until we drop our pretensions and we say with verse 6 of our chapter, we have not listened, then I want to suggest we don't get very far in our relationship with God. We won't make much spiritual progress with God until we look within ourselves and take responsibility for what we see. And when we do that corporately, like we do when we gather here on Sundays, we need to understand what a serious, profound and intentional thing it is that we do. But let me finish with one last and I think very significant point from this chapter. Because we've talked about prayer, we've talked about what, what characterises uh, Daniel's praying, but the thing that so many people want to know about prayer is, what was the answer? And we've got that in the last little section of, uh, of this chapter for us. What was God's answer to Daniel's prayer? Now we know, because we're obviously reading about the past, we know that in part it was to allow the return of some of the exiles to Jerusalem. And we can read of that in verses 25 and, and following. But I think there's a more important answer in verse 24 where it's written, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy one. Well, while the number is almost certainly symbolic, like numbers usually are in the Bible, 77s probably refers to 70 times seven years, which makes about 490 years. Add that to when we know Daniel was writing, and that brings us to around the time of Jesus. And, of course, he was the one who would finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, and bring in everlasting righteousness once 
and for all. So I want to say you can try all sorts of gimmicks and methods to breathe life into your prayer life. You can try all sorts of approaches to praying and ordering the things that you pray about in different ways and all of that. But I want to say we need to take a leaf out of Daniel's book today and apply it to the Lord Jesus and ask yourself the question, Is he your treasure? Because if he is, then your prayer life and your lived life will show that truth in spades. Amen.